Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch, where we talk with experts and practitioners who are pushing the envelope in cybersecurity. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, The Nightmare of IoT Vulnerabilities, we talk with Stefano Zanero and Roberto Clapas of Secure Network. Stefano and Roberto walk us through the nightmare that is security more telling perhaps the lack of security in the IoT devices we're making these days. So let's just start. Just introduce yourself. If you say your name, where you're from. Sure. I'm Stefano Zanero. I'm an associate professor at Politecnico di Milano. And I founded uh, Secure Network, which is uh, Italy's largest penetration testing team. Awesome. And I'm Roberto Clapis, and I work in Secure Network, which, well, you already know. <laughs> yeah, you guys work together. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show with us. Always fun to, to chat with people, particularly who are kind of outside the U.S. and maybe seeing some of the issues that here we, we may not be encountering. So I always think it's interesting just to hear kind of how you got into this space, because so far, I don't know any kid who like woke up at age five and was like, I want to work in security. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I woke up at age five and I decided <laughs> I like computers. But setting that aside, so I think that what got me interested in security originally uh, was the interest in, in network protocols. So experimenting with network protocols, I found that there were these interesting things, like you could make computers disconnect from the internet at some point. <laughs> And I got interested and hooked into that and I started studying in parallel with the university, which was not teaching any computer security yeah. course. In fact, I started teaching it after being hired. So it's kind of, I, it worked the other way around. I went to the university with the course instead of getting the unit course from the university. So that's my story. Right. Uh, there's some quote about wanting to, you know, foresee the future, you just need to invent it. <laughs> yes, <So>. yes. <laughs> You've been inventing your career path. At least. Uh, and how about you? I wanted to invent stuff and make stuff. The easiest way to make stuff was to program. Okay. So I started as a coder. But uh, after a while coding and understanding the internals of how things worked, I started to look too deep into them. So I noticed stuff that shouldn't work in some ways and started to see weird behaviors. You know, that that funny effect yeah. when something behaves almost as it should, but that almost allows you to do something more with it. Yeah. And I got curious and I liked it. So, well, he actually asked me to work for him. So I got the chance. Right. That's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he reminds you that. Every yes, day. every time, every single time. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So what, you know, you guys flew from a ways, right? You might win the prize for like farthest travel to this conference. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Possible. And then there's also, there's also people from Israel. So we, we kind yeah, of tied. Yeah, it, might, it might have you. Right? <laughs> so other than coming for the food in Austin, sort of what, what brought you guys to this conference? I was actually uh, among the people that uh, started putting this together last year. Yeah. And I think that having a conference that is focused on defensive techniques is actually a very good thing. I have been on the Black Hat review board for years, and we have actually added also tracks in Black Hat dedicated to defense. Yeah. Because that, that needs to be done, and, and a lot of the conferences are really focused on the offense, which is good. Yeah. Offense is like the, the, the mother of, of the security industry in yeah. many ways. But defenses i mean there's way more people that whose day job is in defense so the offensive side is in part cool in part necessary but the defensive side is very good yeah 
you guys specifically, you know, you haven't spoken yet, and we'll definitely post kind of anything that you have, the recordings, etc., so people can can see that. But for people who may not, you know, may not see that, what are what's the sort of things that you're talking about today? Today we will talk about IoT. Okay. We started looking into the code for IoT device uh, a few years back. And we started to see vulnerabilities that shouldn't be there. And by shouldn't be there, I'm not talking about any vulnerabilities. I'm talking about buffer overflows and format strings that any modern uh, text editor compiler complains about. So we started wondering why is IoT 20 years back? And so vulnerabilities are, are actually older than him. So. Yeah, <laughs> m- most, most of the vulnerabilities are older than me. So Dad's vulnerabilities. <laughs> so we started looking into the reasons for that, yeah. and we found there is no tool chain, no uh, way for us to teach people that are, are programming uh, <coughs> IoT devices to write secure code. There's no communication there. Yeah. And there's... So basically, what, what one of the things we did during this research was to reach out to the security community and say, hey, okay, so you can give an advice, an actionable advice yeah. to somebody developing for embedded systems, a developer, not a security expert, a developer, yeah. and you want to make it like a most valuable advice, tweet, tweet long advice, yeah. what is it? And we got the most awful responses. Not awful in the sense that they were bad. They were extremely good. But most of the responses were like, okay, so you need to sit down and start threat modeling. And then when you have modeled your threats, you can begin building in their defenses and and apply language-based security, which which is all things that I would teach. But if you read them with the uh, point of view of somebody that needs to program the next intelligent thermostat or the next baby monitor... It's just not going to work. It's not. It's not the way people it's are. It's in, it's completely impractical for them to yeah. do that. So, and, and we don't have good suggestions such as okay. So, just to start, you need to not do this. Filter these things and use these libraries, and that's going to take care of like 90 percent of the problem. We don't have that. Yeah. So, it, it's not going to work for hundred percent of the cases. But right. we don't have even the ninety percent. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, we were talking about this a little last night. It's sort of like the two worlds are just completely siloed, right? Like they're they're not touching each other at all. And so when they try and communicate, it's just, it's like, you know, ships passing in the night, right? Like yeah. We're talking about this stuff and you're talking about this stuff and it's just not really resonating with each other. I think that's really interesting. I mean, are you, is part of this talk essentially like the top five, like if you're going to do nothing else, do these five things, right? We also have a part on that, uh, mostly because uh, this talk that we're going to give tomorrow is going to go around in um, developer conferences. So we, we want to communicate that, uh, for both people that are looking for defense strategies, which like this conference, and also for uh, conferences like Code Motion or other that yeah. are for developers. They are meant for developers to learn. So yeah, we have a checklist. Yeah, <laughs> you're just gonna start showing up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and we have um. So basically, the theme of the talk. So it's actually, we are lying. It's not about vulnerabilities. It's about zombies. <laughs> so the whole talk is about zombies and how to kill those zombies. So we have a lot, a list of like the bad tools, like you see in zombie films, like right? yeah. a guy trying to shoot at zombies, and that doesn't work because you need to bat them down. 
So as everybody knows by now, but you know, the guys in the field never know. And the developers do not know. We look at these these things as security professionals say, Yeah, no, how could you possibly write that? And the reason is that the guys on the other hand, on the other side of the keyboard, do not know. Yeah. And we don't give them the, the ways to do that. I, we have actually, the two of us have tried to configure one of the development environments that these guys are using in order to put in the security flags that we are used to have in every other development environment. It took us hours to figure out how to reconfigure it so that it was just as secure as GCC with the default options. Yeah. We're not talking rocket science security it's stuff. It's the basics. Just the basics. Yeah. yeah. And we actually didn't manage. <laughs> yes. For some of these things, there's, there's just no equivalent. There are some options that you are just left wondering and you don't know what yeah, it is. It's just it's problems you can't, if you didn't build it, you don't know. It's sort of like... In, no, no. It's just you would need to patch the environment to enable stack protection, for example. Yeah. And there is no other way. And, you know, having not, for those of us who aren't, you know, daily kind of thinking about either developing or programming for IoT devices or thinking about the security posture, is it, you know, are they patchable? Like, you know, let's say I bought a camera that has a bunch of these vulnerabilities in there. Is there, you know, a refresh on the so operating most systems? The, or? So most of the, the IoT devices have also the problem that you cannot really deliver patches very well. So it's, that would be a, a good reason to do it to write the first time. Because there's no interface to it. There's no like... Yeah. And one of the things that we noticed is that besides the, the actual vulnerabilities, so there's a number of things in operating systems nowadays, stack protection, ASR, uh, that do defense in that yeah. and make a little bit harder the work of people exploiting stuff. Yeah. In most of these devices, those defenses are just not there. And that's way more difficult to enable. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about your regular smart television at home. Yeah. I'm talking about devices such as a half-ton industrial robot that, that is working with buffer overflows that are straight from the 90s, like pick up Aleph ones, uh, smashing the stack for fun and profit, and literally copy line by line what, what he was doing in 1994. And, and, and it would work right. perfectly on today's robot. So, Wow. <laughs> that's, so that's that truly sort of nightmare scenario that you know every non-technical magazine and, and newspaper talks about, like a machines attacking us, robots sort of killing oh, us. As, as long as the robots are like that, and I think there's no problem. We can shut them down. Right. Yeah, well, you can just exploit them. To them. <laughs> so if you see any Terminators walking around in here, you know what, who they're looking for. Really long requests to it. It's probably gonna go down. Ask a long question. Ask a very long question and see. <laughs> That's incredible. When you sort of think about when you, you know, people are introducing these IoT devices into their networks, right? So it's, you know, you had a traditional network where maybe you had some mainframes and, you know, desktops, but now suddenly, you know, we've all seen the graphs where the sort of number of devices that are, are networked is just exploding, right? I've seen, you know, 50 billion devices by maybe 2020, right? Which is like... Yeah. You know, disquieting. Yes, it's troubling, right? <laughs> you know, when you think about that, like, what does that mean from a security perspective for that whole network, right? Because you've suddenly introduced these devices that are, you know, have huge vulnerabilities. Are they essentially just easy gateways into that network, easy ways to kind of like do lateral attacks, whatnot? So is yes. <laughs> Well, the other answer is cue to Rob running away from this <laughs> the room, <laughs> just screaming. Yeah, I think. 
for most of the devices we are talking about, the only way to secure them would be to just keep them offline. Okay. Because there are no patches. Uh, the vendors are not in- interested in patching them. There is no way to create a security standard. For example, for energy consumption, you have a label telling you this device consumes this amount of energy every day. But that's not true for security. You cannot <coughs> sell a device because it's secure. No one right. is going to care. Yes. So vendors don't, don't do that. Yeah, yeah, don't usually that's, do that. That's the, uh, so Mudge was proposing to do an underwriter's lab for security, okay. which is actually kind of a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. And at least the basics. Who, who is it? Mudge Zako. Okay. It was proposing to do, uh, like, let's do the same thing as the underwriter's lab right. for, for electrical stuff. Yeah. Let's do the same for cybersecurity. It's not going to say they are secure. But, but you're going to say at least we tested them for these basic things and that they don't really break down that easily. That would probably be in the direction of what uh, Roberto was saying. But then I think that the actual answer is we want to make sure that whatever devices get deployed can be updated. Yeah. And then there's the whole problem of how we create the business model around these things so that the companies that produce them do not just go out of business and leave millions and billions of these devices right. rotting around. The zombies, right? Yeah, the zombies, yes, yes, coming out of their graves. But that's a different thing. But first of all, we, we would need to figure out a way to make them updatable, which is not always easy. Yeah. I mean, if you think of industrial stuff, if you think of healthcare-related stuff, yeah. These things get implanted in, in people's bodies. Yeah. Plus, we want to create libraries and standards to update stuff because the update mechanism, if that is broken, that is going to break everything down. And we have seen really poorly implemented uh, update yeah. systems. Yeah. And, you know, we can always sort of try and predict what's coming down the pike, but... You know, the history would show that we're not particularly good at it, no. right? So, it's difficult to make predictions. Um, you know, I, I think that idea of leaving, making sure that you've left a pathway to be able to come back and, and address right. problems that may not be there. What, are you seeing anyone sort of, you know, understanding the implement, implications of those IoT devices, essentially maybe networking them, but putting them on a separate network or, you know, sort of trying to isolate their access is that something that's you're seeing people do or is that sort of like i think it depends on the field in the industrial world uh, that's been for a long time uh, the answer so the the reason why these things were not vulnerable or or rather they were vulnerable but not really attacked was that they were disconnected from the internet And even now, if you, if, I mean, I was giving a talk at a conference about industrial systems and, and one of the guys said, okay, so what do I do? I mean, fine, yeah. the problem is clear. How do I deal with it? It's, it's like separation of networks as we do already. Yeah. Going to answer that. And the answer is yes, partially. Yeah. It, of, of course it helps. Nothing's but, a panacea. Yeah, because the, the reason is that most of these devices are, are more and more dependent on connecting to the outside. So you need to poke holes in your perimeter, yeah. just just like it happened on the corporate networks, right? Uh, with all the BYOD and uh, all of the connectivity to services, you had to poke holes. Yeah. And, and same goes for physical devices. Yeah, so you need, you need to be able to phone home to the manufacturer, to the service provider, whoever that is, right? So you restart that idea of air so, gapping is sort of... I've seen there several security cameras or other IoT devices being in the same network 
with the machinery, which was insulated, but the point is that once an attacker gets in, yeah. you can hack a cheap camera with a very basic exploit, and then from there, try to escalate or do any lateral movement, because maybe an industrial robot is not something you can easily find, but a cheap camera you can probably yeah. find on the market, so you can exploit that first and just stay there. Since those devices need internet access, you're pretty sure you're going to be able to reverse shell back once yeah. you, you get in. We try not to make these interviews all the sort of sky is falling, right? <laughs> the awful things, right? I, I know in this space it's it's hard not to. Is anyone you know kind of doing you know doing things well? Is there anyone you would point to be you know as much as we point to the problems, but to right. kind of the examples? Yeah, actually, since we started working on uh, with some of our clients on those problems, they uh, started noticing that it was uh, an issue and they had to uh, they had to address it so we started to both test some of their tools and some of their, the part of their code and once we found pattern and patterns that, that they were getting wrong we started giving courses giving classes to their developers and the response the feedback is pretty good yeah because uh, the company realized that it's way easier to fix something before it goes to production and they want to do things right so yes things are moving yeah. i hope they're gonna catch up uh, there's something yeah. so in the one of the things that i that i find in the in the light of trying to, to figure out the the, the silver lining uh, <laughs> right. there is one i promise, there, one, I promise. <laughs> so uh uh, no, one of the things that we actually found very good was that uh, while we were doing research on industrial robots, for instance, we got in touch with uh, one of the largest robotic vendors. Uh, it's not diff- I mean, if people f- Google it up, it's not difficult to figure out which one. And what surprised me positively was the time of reaction. We emailed, they, they had like a single email for sending in vulnerability reports mm-hmm. for all their stuff, oh, wow. which in a very large company with very complex teams is actually yeah. very good because yeah. you don't need to figure out who right. to report who, who that to. I need to get this to? And they replied within 24 hours and like the right team engaged within 48 hours. Right. Within five days, they came back with a remediation plan. And the only thing that they were worried about, they didn't sue us, which is kind of good. And the only thing that they were worried about, and rightly so, was the time frame because they, they said, okay, so we are deploying these own robots. We cannot do it in like 15 days. We need to have time. Once we, said, once we told them that we had like months before the, the conference, we wanted to present the Report that yeah. they were absolutely fine with that. They deployed uh, the patch and made and cared about the fact that their own uh, implementers, vendors, consultants in, in their partner yeah. network knew that it was important. Wow. So the, the handling of the vulnerability, at least for some of these companies, is actually pretty good. They've they've learned from the market and yeah. and, and they started doing it the right way. Yeah, I mean the sort of fear of the front page of the newspaper is, I think, a significant one for a lot of these. Yeah, right? a weird thing is that they wanted us to say their name, to put their name into our slides, and so when, when we present our talk tomorrow, they're going to be there. Okay. And they admitted, yes, we had a vulnerability and we did what we could to fix it, yeah. which is a really nice response, actually. Yeah, and you know, a free market, you hope, eventually sort of begins to sort out who's the sort of 
doing right. the right things and maybe not. There certainly are challenges, right? Because you know they go out of business and then there's no way to patch right? as things are just right? zombies. Cool. What other things? I mean, the stage is yours. What, what what else do you want to talk about? What would you kind of what message would you like to get out to the community? To the security community is to start talking with developers because what I've seen uh, one of the reasons I'm here is that this conference is about defense because in security conferences you mostly see security people wanting to see the new cool attack and I love it it must be done because otherwise we are gonna stay in the past we need to do that but there is one more thing that we need to do is that what may seem obvious for us it's not for most of the developer community, so we should start communicating with them. We should start telling them how to do stuff and why, mostly why. Yeah. The how will come as a question after that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does seem like, I mean, like anywhere, you like to, sh- to chase the shiny new toy, right? Like, oh, right. this is cool, like, let's talk about that. But then some of the basics sort of that are, you know, not as exciting, right? But... Yes. And also I think that one of the things that I learned from doing this research was that we really have a problem with enablers. So we need to talk to the developers, but actually what we would need is to put into their tool chain things that enable them to understand and to fix stuff. And some of these things are not rocket science. They could be there. Obviously, they are not there because they are not requested. So if you are developing an IDE, your customer with the, the developer wants to be faster. They want to be, to be easier to share knowledge. Security is not probably going to be their concern. We need to find a way to inject in this market the, the, secu- yeah, the security considerations in there because once the people that create IDs, SDKs, that create the, the base uh, on which the IoT is built, put in some of the building blocks, those building blocks are going to go a great length into making IoT security at least as bad as a security in other sides of the industry, <laughs> which would be already an improvement. Yeah. <laughs> They'll just be, you know, as, just as just bad as, as bad as the rest, rest of us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, while we're thinking and and we were concerned about Spectre and Meltdown, yeah. we were also trying to tell one of the people we interviewed for IoT why is a string copy an issue. So that's, there is a gap a there. Yeah. There's a gap. Or people writing back and, and then saying, okay, so do we need to care about this whole Meldon Inspector issue? And, and you're like, e- e- not yes. really. Right. Well, yes, but, but there's this other yeah. set of things that probably come first. Yeah. <laughs> like about a dozen. Yes. Very cool. Partly we, you know, I'm always interested because it's, it's the area that we, for the other business that we're in, think about is, you know, the idea of moving target defense, is that something that you kind of have encountered or seen, particularly you, um, you guys come from sort of an academic background. Right. What's your, you know, exposure been to that? So I think it's an idea that whose time probably has, has come in some ways. Uh, there's all these ideas, moving target defense, deception, things that have been in the community, they have been spoken about for years, but not really practiced yeah. that much. In the IoT world, I don't think, I mean, I don't think they, they are at the maturity level 
to, to consider that probably yet. But it's it's surely an interesting it's surely an interesting subject, and uh, it's a subject that I'm hearing talking about more and more. Cool. The other piece that you know I know that you you've spoken about before, and just because you're from your background being in, in Europe. You know, GDPR is sort of like every every conference we go to, someone is sort of screaming from the top of their lungs that we need to, to comply with this. You know, what's your sort of perspective on that, the history of it? And I think I heard you talking about how it's maybe not as new as some people uh, would imagine it is. Yes. So uh, <laughs> the reason why I was smiling is that uh, while you were saying comply, and every time I hear uh, somebody talking about compliance, my mind goes to the Borgs for Star Trek, comply. <laughs> so imagining the, the, the people from Brussels as the Borgs for Star Trek, it's kind of fascinating. But so I think that the, the, you had a very, very right observation right there, that this is not something new. Uh, most of these regulations have been in effect in Europe for like 20 years almost. So the reason why this is new is that these, the, the way that this has been applied now impacts strongly also companies that are not based in the EU but that are uh, treating data yeah. related to EU citizens in a globalized world. It's basically every single company that does business on the internet. So I can understand the screaming. I, I can understand 4% that. of turnover gets a lot of people kind of excited. Right. Sure. Yes, yes, of it's course. It's a big number. <laughs> but on the other hand, I wouldn't be that scared about the, um, the sanctions or the fines themselves because it's very it's a very long process to get to be fine about it. But what I think is important is that, of course, GDPR changes perspective for American companies because the, the way that the protection of personal data is structured in the EU is very different, radically different. So I think that it's, it's actually more of a problem of legal and procedural issues than of security issues per se. There's not that much technical things that are different mm. or required. There's requirements, for instance, in separation of data, yeah. but it's, it's, it lies more in the programmer's ballpark and in the system designer ballpark than in the security right. area as we usually define it. So where the data is residing and how it's transferred, not right. necessarily like the... How it is handled, how it is separated, uh, all of the uh, requests about being able to explain algorithms used for selections or things like that. Those, but they are all requests that relate with IT, of course, not necessarily with security. And in fact, I think that this security, pure, I mean, of course, if you're for security, you're thinking of the CISO, of course, they are going to be heavily involved. But the technical teams doing security, I don't really know if they are going to be involved that much. Plus, if you actually read them, what GDPR is asking uh, companies to comply with. That sounds like reasonable. I mean, it's not... It's not something... <laughs> if you read way. through it, uh, while I was reading it, I was like, well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope this, <laughs> this is applied to my personal data. So, yeah, that's not something impossible to share. Yeah. It's something that should be done. Very cool. And do you sort of see... I mean, I think what's interesting is, is will that effectively become a standard, a worldwide standard, right? Because if you, you know, for these global companies, right, you, you've got to comply with what's happening yes. in Europe, right? Like, it's crazy to be thinking about sort of operating it in a different right. way in the different regions, right? Sense. 
it, it makes a lot of sense. And as I was uh, observing to a meeting of Caesars a, a few months back when we were discussing this, it was like, yeah, guys, you know, uh, we got Hypa from you, you got Sarvanis Oxley, and uh, this time it's going, it's going the other way around. It's, so, payback. it's, payback it's just payback time. So. <laughs> I mean, with that, I can't think of a better ending. <laughs> finally, finally, Europe's coming back. Uh, right. We all love Sarbanes-Oxley. 